VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With the transition from winter to spring upon us, some may find themselves swapping snow shovels for sandbags. The right policies can help communities be prepared before the next flood. Today's guest, Forbes Tompkins, an officer for the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Initiative, leads work to modernize federal policies so the country's infrastructure is more flood ready. Today, we'll talk about solutions that can keep the U.S. community safe during the peak flood season of spring and beyond. Forbes, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Now, I want to say just to the listeners of Weather Geeks Podcast, uh, you know, Forbes is a bit under the weather here, but he was still gracious enough to come into the studio and and do this this interview for the Weather Geeks Podcast. So I, I just want to express my gratitude to a fellow Florida State Seminole. Flor- Forbes got his bachelor's degree in meteorology and is uh, at Florida State University. He actually has a master's degree in meteorology from Florida Institute of Technology and also a master's in energy policy and climate from Johns Hopkins. So we're talking to a meteorologist, but you've kind of taken your career in a different direction. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Pew. Sure. So I help lead the uh, infrastructure, resilient infrastructure policy work for the Pew Charitable Trust's uh, Flood Prepared Communities team uh, and also stakeholder engagement outreach. Um, It's kind of been a windy road uh, to get here. If I always thought it was cheesy when folks, when I was growing up, would say, if you asked me 10 to 15 years ago where I'd be, now, I never would have guessed this. And um, I guess now is my turn to eat crow because, uh, you know, I started as a meteorologist, fascinated by weather, still am. Uh, that was my childhood dream. But as I saw the impacts of flooding in particular uh, around the country and communities to businesses, schools, et cetera, um, it became clear that there was a void to fill. And I wanted to try to do my part to, to address it. Yeah, and I, I noticed that you, before you kind of took this path, while you were back at Florida State, uh, you were involved in some of the weather shows and worked at WCTV, which is a television station there in Tallahassee. Uh, did any of this on-air communication experience prepare you for the type of more policy and communication work that you did do today in terms of flood and flood policy? I think it was a tremendous help. Um, and one of the things I often think of is is how useful of a program something like the FSU Weather Show uh, could be for a lot of young, uh, up-and-coming either meteorologists or anyone across any sector. I mean, it really helped me overcome the fear of public speaking. It really um, puts you to task on finding ways to communicate in things like intrinsic science to a layman audience, uh, which really can be applied through almost any sector in any profession. Yeah, let, let's kind of take a contemporary or, or sort of here and now look at what's going on, because as we're taping this podcast, we just saw tremendous flooding in the Great Plains after the so-called bomb cyclone uh, in, the, in the Great Plains. Nebraska and parts of the Great Plains region are just inundated. We saw damage to Offutt Air Force Base, which is a key strategic base in the military. Are there things just that you're seeing from your lens? Are there sort of 
surprises, lessons, or things that you would point out from this particular flood event from the things that you think about from flooding and infrastructure perspectives? Sure. I mean, unfortunately, it's not, in, in my field of work, I really find it's not that surprising anymore. Um, we look at these numbers, uh, the state of our country's infrastructure, um, flooding on a weekly, if not annual basis, um, and it's clear that there's a trend that we're seeing increasingly costly impacts. Uh, each of the last three decades since the 1980s, we've seen uh, record-breaking billion-dollar disasters related to flooding um, that have actually increased $100 billion each decade uh, since 1980. Um, so. It's really unfortunate. I think we are dealing with a combination of uh, population growth and some um, dated policies that are being used to inform where uh, and how we build our infrastructure and also locate our communities, uh, as well as a population migration to some of the more vulnerable areas uh, along the coast, but also inland. Yeah, I know that the infrastructure is a, a big discussion point uh, in in the country in general. I mean, we think about roads and bridges and railways and and buildings and whatnot. And then you you couple extreme weather events like this into the mix. Uh, it's it's very important that um, in terms of infrastructure policy, we we really need to think about weather. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I think people, uh, generally policymakers, but also the human, um, you know, the general mindset tends to be reactive. Um, and that's something that we really need to try to overcome. Um, it's easier said than done. Um, and usually it takes an extreme weather event like uh, that that just occurred in Nebraska, but also the more recent Hurricane Florence, Hurricane Harvey. I mean, the list goes on and on, unfortunately. Um, but we've got to find a way to better incentivize communities, uh, local, state, and federal governments to really get ahead of the next storm. We need to be more flood-ready and disaster-ready. Uh, and right now, we just have a broad spectrum of policies that unfortunately don't achieve that. Now, uh, speaking of the, the flooding in Nebraska and, and the Great Plains, I, you know, I talked to you for a piece I wrote in Forbes magazine, and you we were talking about this notion of coastal flooding versus inland flooding like we saw with uh, with the bomb cyclone and and you had some interesting comments or thoughts there in terms of people's perspectives in terms of how they see flooding in coastal regions versus inland can you share that with the listeners sure i i think there's there's often this misconception that the majority of coastal flooding happens along the coast, or sorry, the majority of flooding happens along the coast, but the analysis we've done shows that over the last 10 years, it's actually inland states uh, that have six out of the top eight states that have seen major flooding disasters. And while you get some of the more headline-grabbing flooding events, like the Hurricane Harvey's um, and also Katrina's and Sandy's and, and Florence that have... Uh, a much larger uh, impact financially, economically, um, we really see kind of these, these multiple events uh, on an annual basis that uh, it's not only peak flood season during the spring, but it's also uh, very much peak flood season inland. We are talking with Forbes Tompkins, who's an officer of the Pew's Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Initiative. Now, in the intro, I mentioned the words flood season. Is there a flood season? And if so, when is it? 
Well, our analysis shows that over the last 10 years, if you wanted to pinpoint one season in particular that's uh, seeing the most flooding, that would be spring, um, hands down, um, for the most of the major flood uh, events that we continue to see. But it's important also to note that this is a year-round problem that depending on which region you're located in across the country, uh, you should always be prepared. I mean, even during the the fall and the winter seasons when when folks seem to be uh, more concerned about blizzards or snowfall, over the last 10 years, we've still seen on average seven to eight major flood events uh, across the country. Yeah. And I think it's important. Yeah, we we think about floods and clearly they can happen at any time of the year. But your your data suggests that flood spring is really one of the, the key periods. Let's geek out as two meteorologists for a second, Forbes. What makes the f- spring sort of so flood prone as opposed to any other? I mean, of course, we get floods associated with hurricanes during the summer and fall. But what it is about the meteorology that uh, makes spring so flood prone? Well, you're almost kind of priming the pumps, if you will, um, for conditions conducive to flooding to happen. So you've got a transition from a cold winter season, especially inland. So you've got frozen ground. Uh, You typically have a a deep snowpack in some areas. And what you can see as you transition from winter to spring is if you have this warm weather outbreak, uh, you can see a combination of melting snow, heavy rains, and uh, hard, compact ground that's really restricted in its ability to absorb water um, that all comes together and can really amplify some of these flooding events. Um, So that, to us, you know, the general factors that really tend to elevate flood risk and impacts during the spring, those are the general ones. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you touched upon, which is important for our listeners to understand, is flooding is not necessarily just a function of what falls from the sky in terms of the rain. I mean, that's a critical element for sure. But as you mentioned, and as we saw in Nebraska, for example, uh, it's the rapid melt of ice, for example, or the ground conditions or the imperviousness of the uh, surfaces that the rain is falling onto. So it, it makes sort of flood management, flood prevention a bit more difficult than just the weather forecast, right? And especially, that's absolutely true. And then on top of that, you have dated infrastructure that was built 50 plus years ago in in most places that really was built to a standard um, that is no longer sufficient given some of the the rainfall and extreme weather events we're seeing today. But also over time, it's been degrading uh, and aging. So it's really just a combination of a perfect storm that came together uh, in the situation in Nebraska. But it's something that Unless there's significant change to policy and, and how we, if we can modernize our flood policies, but also our nation's infrastructure to make sure we build it right the first time, that's really something that, that could make us better prepared in the future decades down the road, too. Yeah, my, my colleague at the University of Georgia, Brian Bledsoe, often talks about that the, you know, the infrastructure now, as you mentioned, is designed for you know, a past generation of rainstorms. And so you know, we really do need to update the infrastructure, the assumptions that we, we make about rainfall. There, there was this assumption called the stationarity assumption, which is that you know, the rain in 1970 will look just like the rain in 2019. And that may... That may is, probably likely not the case. And so the engineering and infrastructure definitely has to keep up. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on something called flood mitigation. What is that? 
Well, flood mitigation, I mean, the, the technical term, I would say, of mitigation is typically efforts to reduce the loss of life and property by lessening the, the impact of flooding. Um, so that's something that we're uh, definitely focused on in some of our work at Pew uh, within the Flood Prepared Communities team, because really we're not doing enough um, at the federal level, but you could argue at all levels uh, of government and communities to invest more in mitigation to make sure we're better prepared for the next storm um, and that communities, businesses, and schools can better withstand the next storm. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with... uh, Forbes Tompkins, and Forbes is a meteorologist, but he's also an officer for the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Initiative, and we are talking floods. And uh, before the last break, we we were talking about uh, flood mitigation, but what what it, what does that really look like? Give us some examples of what flood mitigation, some concrete things that you know from a policy or infrastructure implementation standpoint. What what does it look like? Well, it, it looks like trying to not only modernize uh, policies so that we're taking into account future flood risk, um, but it's also uh, making smarter investments in, in where we invest. So, you know, if you've had a community uh, or a number of homes that are repeatedly flooded, it might not make sense for those homes to continue to be there. It's not fair to the people that live in, live in them. Uh, it's also not fair to the community that continues to have to to pay for them to be rebuilt, as well as taxpayer dollars. Um, so th- there's an array of untapped potential that the federal government has to to better invest in this flood mitigation, whether that could be um, establishing a flood mitigation state revolving loan fund, that could be updating um, the flood-ready requirements for uh, any type of federally funded projects within flood-prone areas, um, better incorporating nature-based solutions. Uh, right now, we we tend to uh, have a mentality as a country to to build and use a lot of impervious surfaces, and that's actually contributed to putting us in the situation we're in today, uh, especially with places like Houston um, that had to deal with some historic flooding from Harvey. But there can be a way to better combine and almost parallel efforts of combining uh, nature-based solutions with uh, gray infrastructure that can really help communities be sustainable in the long run. You know, one of the things, I, I teach a class at the University of Georgia on urban climate, and I have actually seen examples of something called permeable concrete or permeable asphalt, where the water literally just infiltrates into the asphalt and concrete the same way it does sort of sand or soil. Are you familiar with these types of mitigation strategies? 
We are. And, and there's a number of communities around the country that are really getting innovative in their approaches to trying to deal with this in their backyards. Um, you've got communities even like uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. They took a parking lot and turned it into a park. And where they created the new parking lot, they made it underground with the ability to store and hold uh, storm runoff and, and, and rainwater and release it gradually so it actually reduces flooding uh, overall. And, and you mentioned this earlier, but I, I was actually in a, at a conference in New Orleans last year, and I, I saw a speaker talk about sort of these buyback programs. And she was talking about how after Hurricane Harvey in Houston, uh, you know, I guess the city was coming in and buying or state, I don't know which one, was coming in and buying up properties in flood prone areas. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to do, but there's an interesting flip side to that. How do you, in those situations, deal with people that, you know, say, well, this is where I grew up. This is my home. This is my community. Um, yeah, yeah. On the one side, logically, we understand why it's done because you're in a flood zone. I mean, we've done some studies at the University of Georgia that say that certain populations or marginalized populations are more likely, for example, to live in flooded areas in Atlanta, Charlotte, and, and Greenville, Spartanburg. Um, so you've got this sort of logical notion that, yes, this community or this home is in a flood zone, but then you have the other side, which is this is my home, this is my culture, this is my community. How do we kind of overcome those challenges? It's an extremely um, difficult challenge to overcome and, and one that, you know, takes the right touch, uh, requires the right touch of sensitivity um, and also working with communities that, that are most at risk uh, to flooding, to find that balance of not continuing to put those those folks at risk to future floods, because in the long run, it's really not uh, sustainable, not only for the community, but for them. Uh, the recovery money that they receive, even if they're in the National Flood Insurance Program or, or outside of it from potential federal assistance by other means, really isn't sufficient uh, for people to continue to live in those areas. So it, it's a tough tough decision for a lot of folks, and uh, we think it would be really helpful if you could put almost uh, a structure in place through FEMA that for communities that have repeatedly flooded properties, um, that they need to work with FEMA and uh, those properties to come up with a plan of how to address that and mitigate the the frequency that they're flooding um, and also help those folks. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Forbes Tompkins. And we're talking about floods, flood infrastructure, uh, uh, mitigation of flooding, and implications to people and policy. Uh, I want to touch base on this notion, something you mentioned previously about buyback programs. And I was recently in New Orleans for a conference, and I heard someone talking about this as it relates to uh, Hurricane Harvey in Houston. And, 
you know, on the one hand, we kind of see the, the logic in that. If people are living in flood prone or flood uh, flooded areas, uh, there is this notion that why do we want to continue to put them back in a place where they're going to flood? On the other hand, though, this is uh, in many cases you're dealing with perhaps marginalized communities, people uh, that you know have lived in those communities and in those locations all of their lives, their families, their cultures. So how do we balance that with this idea that we need to get people out of flood-prone regions? That's a great question and, and one that has no easy solution. Um, <clears throat> I think you, you need to find a tough balance um, of, uh, you know, a lot of people – that live in flood-prone communities when they made the decision to move there uh, never knew that it was at risk of flooding. So there's a disclosure issue um, that we're working here at Pew on uh, to make sure that renters and, and homeowners are actually fully aware before making a, an investment or, or moving their family into an area that they know what they're getting into. For those that are already in those areas, uh, you know, you kind of need a menu of options and, and maybe there is no silver bullet um, solution. I think some areas, I mean, there, there are communities uh, around the country that might have a household that's flooded 20 plus times in the last 10 years. It clearly would not make sense for anyone to continue to live in those areas. But there are also a combination of efforts that you can use, um, whether that's increase. Uh, flood mitigation projects uh, around the community, increase, um, you know, stormwater management uh, capabilities, drainage capabilities, uh, better utilize nature-based solutions like marshlands uh, and even oyster beds uh, to reduce some of the storm surge impacts. You kind of need an all-of-the-above all approach uh, to give people a fair chance uh, that are already in those areas, but also to help them make uh, a better educated decision uh, when they're thinking about moving there. I want to pivot the discussion to infrastructure, and that's something that I know you think quite a bit about. Uh, let's talk about our current infrastructure, the sort of flood environments that we see now, the extreme rainfall. From your lens, what what is the most vulnerable aspect of infrastructure, or what, where should we be starting first from a policy standpoint in terms of our current infrastructure? Wow. I mean, to me, in the work that we do, there is no infrastructure that's not vulnerable to flooding. So that, that's kind of just a, a one-size-fits-all, really, of, of the whole country when you have uh, the majority of disasters that are occurring or, or flood-related. No one really uh, walks away unscathed. But some of the things that we've been looking at, uh, you know, there were 1,200 roads that were closed uh, for extended period of, periods of time in North Carolina following Hurricane Florence. Uh, there were nearly 40 hospitals that were impacted from uh, flooding during Hurricane Harvey. Some were closed permanently. Uh, and then you've got schools in places around Wilmington, North Carolina, that were closed, um, I think, more than five weeks on end. So you're it, it, there's a ripple effect that if you don't have sustainable infrastructure, the communities that depend on it really can't thrive. And there's a ripple effect that goes throughout the community of, you know, FEMA has found that 40 to 60 percent of small businesses that close their doors during a disaster are never able to reopen. Um, and then if you have closed schools for especially weeks on end, you're forcing families to choose between daycare and family care and going to work. So it's really this holistic view that we need to take when you're connecting roads, schools, 
even military facilities, utilities. Um, we really need better safeguards to you know our infrastructure when we're building it today. Well, with 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 that in mind, and certainly agree with you. What what's the role of local, state, federal government? I mean, you know, there are arguments on both sides of the ledger about how much government should be involved in various things. Uh, but it clearly sounds like to me, you suggest that there should be government policies on some of these flood related challenges. So, so, what do you or Pew and your colleagues see as the role of government? Well, I think everyone needs to be at the table. Uh, I think you need the local communities, uh, individual homeowners, uh, as well as the state and federal government. Um, it, it should be a team effort. Uh, you, the federal government can lay down guidance and, and policies that better incentivize localities and states to take proactive action to address flood mitigation. Um, at the local level, there's a lot of land use policies and ordinances that need to be updated and can be updated. Um, you often need the political will to do that, uh, but we're seeing it uh, in a lot of places around the country. Houston, in particular, uh, after Harvey updated their floodplain uh, ordinance, so now any structures and homes that are built within the 100-year floodplain or the 500-year floodplain have to be elevated at least two feet above the 500-year floodplain, and and that's that's an incredible step forward for an area um, that has had the tendency to have kind of a Wild West mentality when it comes to building. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the 100-year flood and 500-year flood. For, for our listeners, can you explain, Forbes, what 100-year flood really means? I think this is one of the most confusing terms in, in, in modern science communication. I think it gives people a wrong impression about what it actually means. I completely agree. And it's something that we grapple with on almost a, a daily basis of, you know, people assume that if they're not within the 100-year the floodplain, which is essentially an area marked off um, that has been estimated to have a 1% chance of flooding in any given year, uh, and for the 500-year floodplain, that's a 0.2% chance of flooding in any given year, um, some people think that if they flood one year that it might, and they live in the 100-year floodplain, another 99 years will go by before it happens again. Uh, and that's completely misleading. And really, there's a communication issue that, as you hit on, that we, we need to do a better job as a, a scientific and, and policy community to get folks to better understand what exactly that means, but also that the heavy majority of flooding actually extends well outside of these floodplains. Um, and these events can happen with great frequency, Houston in particular, They've had, I think, two to three 500, quote-unquote, 500-year floods in the last three years, three to four years. So we kind of just need to move away from this mentality of if I'm not within this line on a map, then I'm not at risk to flooding. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think this term, and I, I do my best to de-emphasize the 100-year, 500-year flood because it's just confusing. I mean, it, 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 I mean, we can't really blame the public because when you say a 100-year flood, I mean, if you're not an engineer or a hydrologist, I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like it happens every hundred years. So, you know, I, I, I think we all recognize that it's confusing, but I, I certainly can't sort of uh, fault someone that hears that and thinks of it and interprets it that way. But I, I think it's important that organizations like the Pew Trust and others and, and scientists and engineers and communicators are doing a better job conveying what it means. One, one last question on that before we move on. I mean, do you think the 100-year, I mean, the 100-year flood has always kind of been a standard for, you know, 
flood, a rare flood or extreme event, do you think it's still the the, the good standard or do we need to up the ante a little bit? I, I would love to see uh, the scientific community and, and even experts in engineering uh, get a little more creative in how we can quantify uh, w- the probability of, of flooding in a way that's more meaningful and useful uh, to the larger community. I think now for the intent of, say, flood insurance, these types of mapping of outlining the 100-year and 500-year floodplain um, they 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 serve a good purpose, or at least they're meant to, uh, to try to discern who should at least be um, definitely buying flood insurance. But, I mean, you could argue there are people within FEMA. Uh, Roy Wright, who was leading their insurance and mitigation work until last year, said, if you look at your license, yeah, if you look at your license and you see that you're from the state of Florida or live there, you probably should get flood insurance. So the issue... Uh, is not an easy question to solve, but, you know, maybe it's the National Academy of Sciences. Um, you know, anyone that wants to tackle this issue, I think there would be open arms uh, to better ways to communicate flood risk. Yeah, I think about something that General Russell Honore said on, on Weather Geeks one time. He says, if you can stand on your porch and see water, you probably need flood insurance. <laughs> and so I think that was a very common sense way to, to put things. We're talking with Forbes Tompkins, um, officer for the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Community Initiatives. I want to shift now to the coast. Uh, how do we better prepare our coastal communities for flooding? Yeah, the coast is going to have some unique challenges, <clears throat> especially places like the the Miami, Floridas uh, of the country that have a combination of uh, sea level rise that, that they're facing, storm surge as they're uh, well positioned to have a, a higher probability than most of being impacted by tropical systems each year, but also uh, having a, a limestone sediment base, which is essentially like uh, building a community on top of Swiss cheese. Um, so the water, there's there's limited options and ways to stop the water from coming ashore. So what we're seeing in the southeast, the Gulf, even extending up the Atlantic, you're almost having more of these chronic flood issues from nuisance flooding or tidal flooding. And then that's on top of storm surge related flooding uh, from some of the more powerful uh, systems that they see either through nor'easters or tropical storms. So they really, uh, one community in particular, one region in particular that's trying to get ahead of the game is the Southeast Florida Compact, which is essentially the four uh, most southeastern counties in the state of Florida uh, have come together and taken a regional approach because they see this as a, a key foundational issue to their future sustainability. Um, so they're, they're coming up with, I think they have a list of over 100 action items of how they're going to tackle this problem, how they're going to factor in future risk to flooding and their capital improvement investments. Um, they're really embracing the concept of living with the water rather than trying to fight it. Yeah, and I think we saw in the last couple of years what you mentioned, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Florence. One of the really interesting things about Harvey and Florence is they both – did something that hurricanes don't often do. They they stalled. And and there's some scientific literature that suggests that that might happen more frequently in the future or with more intensity. 
But what I want to focus on is when these big coastal storms do stall, uh, they might not be Category 4, Category 5 hurricanes anymore, yet the danger from them is still there. And so I want to pivot this discussion to this notion that these big storms and hurricanes uh, can be very prodigious or prolific flood producers, even if they don't necessarily have a big category attached to them. What are your thoughts on that and how we message these big storms that may sit there as a tropical storm or maybe even a depression, but still produce 30 to 50 inches of rainfall? I think you have a similar issue as we were talking about the 100-year and 500-year floodplain. Uh, There's, um, and and I, you know, I I can't cast a stone uh, against anyone for thinking this way, but there tends to be attention, uh, headline-grabbing attention towards the stronger storms, the Category 3, 4, and 5 storms. But there's less attention to these, like you said, these you know, tropical storms or Category 1 or 2. I think Florence made landfall as maybe even a Category 1, uh, but had immense record amounts of rainfall. And that can be misleading for the public and what they decide to do uh, in their preparation efforts, whether they decide to evacuate, uh, and even when they're planning on coming back uh, to their communities when they evacuate. So I I think uh, we really need to embrace as a, you know, again, the scientific and policymaker community, whether it's FEMA, uh, HUD, NOAA, finding better ways to get the message out to what the extent of these impacts are. Visualizations, the, the Weather Channel has done a great job uh, at, at putting together some of these virtual reality visualizations. I think, Dr. Shepard, we, we worked with you uh, around a, a feature piece uh, hitting on that, um, and, and you underscored the need to really help communities better understand through seeing what actually could happen to them. Uh, And there was just, I think it was in the lead up to Florence, the Weather Channel released um, this kind of minute by minute breakdown of the different flood levels and and what that meant with someone sort of superimposed in front of it. And once you have eight to nine feet of water around you and you're seeing cars floating, trash cans floating, and the person's essentially underwater, I mean, to me, that's a great way to get the message across of it doesn't take a Category 4 hurricane to really cause a lot of damage. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And we we actually uh, did a, a Weather Geeks podcast, uh, Be On The Lookout For It, where we're talking about some of this immersive mixed reality technology that the Weather Channel is using to try to convey visually these threats to the public. Because when you see a flat two-dimensional map with some colors along the coastline saying two to four feet of flooding, that, that may not sound like that much. But when you kind of see it visually in these sort of immersive reality presentations, I think it kind of hits home and, um, you be on the lookout for that that episode in terms of how they're doing it and why they think it's so important going forward. I, I want to round out our discussion for so the discussion of the economics. You know, you're, you're clearly sort of in, in a position where you're thinking about policy and sort of the economic impact of installing flood prevention or mitigation systems. Uh, do we ultimately see a return on our, on, on our investment of these practices? And if so, how? Absolutely. Uh, And I think that's often an underappreciated and recognized part of the story. Uh, The bottom line really is it pays to prepare. Uh, We've got a growing body of literature and research that continues to show, um, the most recent being uh, from the National Institute of Building Sciences, uh, that every dollar invested in disaster mitigation saves society $6 on the back end and avoided future losses. 
Um, and then even more recently, you know, that's more mitigation writ large, but even focused on transportation, utility infrastructure, there's a return, a positive return on investment in almost every single one of these cases. And sometimes it can be extraordinary. Uh, beyond infrastructure, going to the, the household level, uh, there was a report recently released by the Public Works Department in Houston that found if the, the new uh, flood-ready standards that they have in place for building codes now that they implemented after Hurricane Harvey had been in place before the storm, 84% of the damaged homes would have been spared. And the investment up front to, to abide by and meet these code requirements was estimated to be between maybe ten, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, but the return on investment would actually be avoided damages from a minimum of $50,000, range, ranging up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it, it's really a no-brainer, um, and we're trying to get communities and the federal government to, to better embrace this concept uh, and this misconception that, you know, we're going to invest this much more up front and we might not see the return on investment for a while. Well, that, that's clearly less and less becoming the case across the country. Yeah, we're talking with Forbes Tompkins. Before I let you go, Forbes, I want to get your thoughts because you talk to government officials and policymakers or not. Any special tools, tricks of the trade that you use in how you communicate risk to government officials? Because on Weather Geeks, one of the things we, a recurring theme that we like to talk about is how we message complex information to people that perhaps aren't experts in it. It, It's a really difficult challenge um, and always uh, probably a lot more art, a lot less science to it. But what we're finding more and more success with um, is to really communicate the impacts these elected officials are seeing in their backyards. You really need to make this a, a tangible problem and not necessarily something that we're looking at year 2100 or, or even other countries and this huge impact that almost can seem insurmountable to, to take on. But what are, what are some of the options that these folks have uh, that they can help address in their own communities. So usually, you know, they often want to know how much of a problem is this for their district or state or locality, uh, how much is the solution going to cost, and then how much is their district, state, or locality going to benefit uh, when it's all said and done. So it, it really refining your talking points uh, to focus on the lane of who you're talking to and what they care about uh, can really go a long way. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's important to know your audience. I mean, as Ed Maybach once told me from George Mason University, if you don't know your audience, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard with the lights off. And so, you know, yeah, when you're talk, whether you're talking about extreme weather, flooding, changes in the climate, whatnot, that different versions of that will resonate with different people. And so I think uh, what Pew Trust does, Pew Charitable Trust, you sort of know who your audience is and you tailor your messaging accordingly to that off, uh, audience. And so uh, I want to commend you. And uh, it's been a, a pleasure to kind of get to know and be, be familiar with the type of work that you all are doing. And so uh, I thank you so much, Forbes, for coming on the Weather Geeks podcast, particularly knowing uh, that you've been a little under the weather this week. Well, I, I appreciate it. It's been an honor on my end. And just like our country's infrastructure, I try to be resilient. So yeah. <laughs> appreciate the opportunity. Well, and, and thank you. And that's where we'll end it today. And thank you all for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you later. Mm-hmm.